welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and we haven't had any halfling serial killers for a while. Oh, we haven't? Yeah. To stutter. Oh. Halfle. Oh. Halfle. We haven't had many stuttering ones lately. Remember, we, it was like one of those things that John Douglas, that profiler, said was very common was they would stutter. Right. And I feel like we had a few right mm-hmm. in the beginning. Yeah, but Ted the Bundy more we do, was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it hasn't been. Um, haven't found that in my research lately. So, I yeah, know. I'm sure we'll find more. I'm sure we will as time goes on. Um, part two of Gary Heidnick today, the final part. It's only two parts. Yep. We could have stretched this one out, but I get really kind of bored covering trials. So I'm sorry if that part fascinates you guys. But read the book then, because the book goes, like, half of this book is the trial, I swear. It's true. And really, we summarize the most important parts about the trial anyway. So. Yeah. We're good. Um, before that, though, Courtney, do you have a question? I do have a question. So my question for you today, Trisha, is what is something you always wanted to do as a child but were never able to? I wanted to take ballet lessons. Oh. But it just wasn't in the cards. I can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I did do gymnastics for a little while. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't very graceful at that. So I probably wouldn't have been good at battle- ballet. Mm. But well, you never know. Could have been your secret hidden talent. Yeah. All along. What about you? I always kind of wanted to be like a horse girl oh. and go take like horseback riding lessons. Um but kind of same thing, just wasn't in the cards. Yeah, that's an expensive. It is. Both I did any have, anything mm-hmm. that you take hardcore can be expensive. It's true. It's I, true. Friends whose like kids do competitive cheer, or my cousin Ooh. used to do like yeah, mm-hmm. it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah. I did have a friend when I got to be high school who had a horse and let me ride her horse once. Nice. So there was that. Yeah, I mean, growing up and like at least. Where I grew up, it was, you know, a, a more of a city type of situation. Not a big city, but there wasn't farms everywhere with horses. So mm-hmm. if I got to ride a horse or be around a horse, it was a special treat. Got it. Yeah. Same. We had a lot of, like, agriculture farms, but mm-hmm. not, like, yeah. horse farms. Yeah. Okay. Good question. Yeah. But now we're adults, and if we wanted to, we could do those things. I think it's too late for me in ballet. There's a ballet class through, like... Eugene, Parks and Rec. But it's for adults. I can't even touch one of my toes without like bending. Like I can't, I'm so not flexible. I think it's too late. I think it's, I think that ship sailed. Hmm. It's never too late to do what you love, Trisha. I guess. All right. That's good. That's good advice for everybody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do we want to talk about the recap or do we want to talk about the other thing? We'll talk about the other thing at the end. Okay. I wasn't sure. I haven't read, I haven't gone through the whole script. So (laughs) we have something to talk about at the end. Yes, we (laughs) do. Well then Courtney, why don't you give us a recap? Yeah. So last week we learned all about Gary's childhood, where his parents divorced when he was young. His mother died by suicide when he was a child and his father was physically and emotionally abusive. 
After joining the military and being sent to Germany, Gary started experiencing psychotic symptoms and was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which led to his being discharged and then spending the next 15 years in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And then somehow during all of this, he managed to have some relationships and two children that were taken away by DHS, of course. And he started a church where his investments led him to controlling over $500,000. But then he kidnapped an intellectually disabled young woman from a group home, raped her, and then was sent to prison. Right. And that um, $500,000 was with stock tips that he claims came from Jesus. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, when Gary got out of prison, he dated various women, many that were mentally challenged. Some even claimed to have had his children. So besides the ones we just talked about, there were others that may have had his children. And most were women of color. He had a house on North Marshall Street in Philadelphia, and apparently the place was described as a, quote, zoo by those who frequented or lived there. Gary was having sexual sexual relations with many kinds of people from several walks of life. He then decided in 1983 to use a marriage broker to find him an Asian bride. But she needed to be a virgin. Betty Disto, who was a Vietnamese woman looking for a husband, came across Gary's information through the marriage bureau and saw that he was a nurse and he was a decent looking guy. She sent off a letter to Gary to introduce herself and then the romance began. Courtney, what do you think Gary was really seeking? He was obviously getting plenty of sex from local women, many who lived with him, some that claimed to have been impregnated by him. Why would he then branch out to find a mail-order bride? So based on statements that Gary made later that were quoted in the book, you know, he struggled with feeling abandoned, you know, first by his mother when she took her own life, and later on by the women who left him. So I think that he saw this type of arranged marriage as a way of having a kind of ownership over his partner. You know, he literally paid for her by paying the broker. Um, And she would be coming to a strange country with no money and no support to fall back on if she tried to leave him. True. Yeah, her family didn't come with her. Uh, Their relationship through mail correspondence correspondence ensued, and they must have charmed each other. Eventually, Gary sent Betty a ticket to come to the United States, and she, against her mother's wishes, came to America to meet her new beau. Apparently, the picture Gary had sent her did not really match what he looked like. She claimed that he, quote, he looked old. He looked like Dracula. When Gary escorted her to her new home on North Marshall Street, Betty was disillusioned further when she saw that she would be sharing a bed with not only Gary, but another woman who lived there. He told her that she that the woman living there was paying rent, and that's just the way it was. Regardless of her new circumstances, Betty still married Gary in October of that year. Gary treated her very well at this time, giving her cute pet names and talking about the children they would have. This happy time for Betty was short-lived. After one week of marital harmony, Betty came home to find Gary in bed with three other women. She, of course, freaked out and wanted to go home. Gary told her that this was a normal thing in America and to just get over it. One day soon um, after, she discovered what kind of life she married into. Gary beat her up and raped her vaginally and anally. He also threatened to kill her if she ran away. Thankfully, she was able to sneak out of the house a few months later and reported him to the police. Gary was charged with spousal rape, simple assault, indecent assault, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. Unfortunately, Betty failed to appear in court, so the case was dismissed. 
Betty was pregnant with Gary's child. She did eventually tell him, but she also refused to divorce him. Perhaps a cult- cultural thing since, you know, they were having a kid together. That's what I'm thinking. Courtney, what are your thoughts on Gary's lifestyle after his conviction? Well, it seems like Gary was trying to make the most out of his freedom and taking advantage of the things he didn't have access to in prison, mainly women and substances. You know, he's pretty much acting out on his every impulse and doing things that are risky and irrational, which speaks to the potential disorganization in his thinking that could be attributed to schizophrenia. But then, you know, he ends up getting away with the assault on Betty, and he seems to be emboldened and may begin to develop some grandiose beliefs about himself, like he'll never get caught. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times it starts this way for whatever reason. I mean, this is the second time, right, because the first time um, he did go to prison for a little while or to those mental hospitals for a little while, but some of the bigger charges were dropped because she couldn't... Um, she wasn't competent to, to stand testify. trial. Yeah. So he kind of got away with some of that. And then he's getting away with this again. And we've seen that multiple times yeah. where they get away with it because of either some failure in the system or the, or the witness doesn't want to testify or whatever. Right. And then they grow this sense of being able to do no wrong. On November 25th, 1986, Josefina Rivera was working the streets in Philadelphia neighborhood when Gary showed up in his catalog. Cadillac Coupe de Ville. After negotiating a fee, she agreed and got into his car. They stopped at McDonald's and then headed to Gary's house. Gary had told Josefina his full name. When they got to his house, he took her to the bedroom where he promptly grabbed her throat and started to strangle her to unconsciousness. He let her go and then forced her into his cellar. He forced her to remove her clothes, shackled her to the wall, and then promptly fell asleep on her lap. When Gary awoke, he started to dig a hole in the cellar. He made small talk with Josefina all the while, offering her some food that she was not convinced was safe to eat. Gary talked about wanting to you know, start a big family. He admitted that he had four children already with four different women, but that he had not had any contact with any of them. Gary would stop talking and then force himself on Josefina. Four days later... Gary then kidnapped Sandy, who was her full name, Sandra Lindsay. He brought her down to the cellar and was starting his collection of captive women. Sandy was had actually known Gary for four years prior to him kidnapping her. Intimately, in fact. She told Josefina that she actually got pregnant by Gary in the past, but had aborted the baby when she was scared about her circumstances. Sandy's family knew of Gary as well. It was a kind of risky move for him to have kidnapped her in the first place. Courtney, there haven't been many of these guys that actually knew their victims. Anthony Sowell and Eric Napolitano come to mind, but with Eric, that was more like domestic violence to the extreme. What do you think about this? There are, you know, a few other killers who have murdered people that were close to them. You know, Ed Kemper with his mother and her friend, and Randy Woodfield with his former classmate slash friend. Um, But you're right, most killers do not kill people that they know. Most often, really, as a countermeasure. You know, it's much harder to connect a total stranger with a killer than it would be somebody that's in that person's lives. And it's also much easier to think of their victims as objects and dehumanize them if there's no prior relationship built up. Well, Gary was feeding his captives water and crackers at this time and was continuing to dig his hole in the cellar. He would take breaks digging to rape the women. Sandy's family came to Gary's looking for her soon after her disappearance. He told them she was not there and then forced Sandy to write them a note saying that she was okay. 
The girls were freezing and they were hungry. They were only allowed a thin shirt with like no underwear or pants and very little food. They would huddle together for warmth and comfort. Gary continued his assaults. He was, in try- he was trying to impregnate the women. This was his plan. He wanted many children. Sandy's parents didn't buy the note that was sent. They went to the police and then they went to the address the family told him the police did. They didn't know Gary's last name and no one answered the door when they knocked. So they asked one of Gary's accomplices named Tony what Gary's last name was. Tony pronounced the last name correctly, but when asked to spell it, he spelled it wrong. So in turn, nothing showed up when they searched the name in the, you know, whatever database they used. Had they known the proper name of or spelling of Gary's names, I think lives would have been saved. Courtney, what do you think about Gary's goal to have children? Um, you know, like what insights do you have into how his mental illness might be operating? So I think this ties back again to his feelings of being abandoned. So not only did his partners leave him, but all of his children were taken from him, either by their mother or by DHS. In the book, the author kind of quotes Gary as expressing the belief that because he has lost so much, he is somehow owed a family in his mind. And in his mind, the perfect family was having 10 children who would never leave him. So delusions of persecution are common with schizophrenia. And if Gary felt like there was some kind of conspiracy against him to deprive him of this family that he wanted, he could have developed an additional delusion that, say, holding women captive and forcing them to have his babies was not only okay, um, but that the only it was the only way to get the family that he felt he deserved. Um, so in December... 22nd, 1986, Gary found his next victim. Her name was Lisa Thomas. Lisa was not a sex worker, but Gary thought she was. Somehow he sweet-talked her to go on a date with him. He took her out to a TGI Fridays, bought her some clothes, hung out with her for a couple of days, then took her to his house. She apparently took an allergy pill that made her pretty sleepy, and that's when Gary made his move. He had sex with her, then took her down to the basement with his other two victims and got her settled in. Must have been a pretty strong allergy pill if that's what it was. A Benadryl or two, perhaps? (laughs) Eight. (laughs) Some people get really affected by Benadryl. Yes. In January, Gary brought home another woman, Deborah Johnson Dudley. It wasn't discovered how he brought her home, but apparently she was a troublemaker for Gary. As his harem of women began to grow, some of them were becoming better at knowing his moods and how to manipulate the situation. Josefina had been there the longest and had, you know, was probably the most streetwise of all the women, so she was punished less than the others. She was not really known to have been beaten. The others, well, they were constant targets of Gary's rages. I guess he would use the handle of a shovel to punish them. By this time, Gary had finished his hole in the floor, and sometimes punishment was to put the girls in there or to change them, chain them to a hook from the ceiling. He would also make the women beat each other, and he continued his repeated rapes of the women. Gary also would not really let them bathe, and he also forced them to eat dog food. So this hole in the wall or the, ce- the floor is obviously the Buffalo Bill thing. Yep. From Silence of the Lambs. Courtney, what kind of things happen when people are held captive like this? I'm thinking the only other person we've covered that did this was Mark Dutro. I think you're right. Um, you know, serial killers don't often hold their victims captive for long periods of time, in part because their rituals and urges make it too strong to wait that long. 
and because it's very difficult to keep hostages, um, especially multiple people at one time. There are a lot of logistics involved in, you know, keeping hostage keeping, including you have to have a secure space, you have to prevent escape or discovery, you have to keep the people alive, you know, with enough food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But as for the women that were being held, I can't even imagine how terrifying it must have been. You know, there is, of course, the, the physical trauma of being chained, beaten, and raped repeatedly. But there are also the psychological trauma of not knowing when it will be your turn, what the torture will be this time, or even how long you've been down in that basement. In that situation, these women had to find, you know, a horribly uneasy balance of both banding together to try and protect each other, while also doing whatever was necessary for each of them to survive as individuals. They were also freezing and starving on top of everything else. Right. And filthy for the most part. Yeah. He did allow some kind of little bathing at some point, but. Right. So when, you know, they, you, you know, you talked about like they would beat each other. Mm -hmm. It was very much a, well, if I don't beat you, I'm going to get it worse. Yeah. On January 18th, Gary decided to add one more prisoner to his stockpile. 18-year-old sex worker Jacqueline Askins, Askins. Gary seemed to be sadistic when he doled out his punishments. Sandy was punished for trying to move the plywood that covered the hole. Gary had secured Sandy to a device, and she had been hanging by her wrist for a week. She was refusing to eat, so Gary would shove food in her mouth, then close it, trying to induce swallowing. He thought she was pregnant with his child. Um... That's why he was forcing her to eat. Sandy began to vomit, and she developed a fever. Eventually, she lost consciousness. Gary figured she was faking and uncuffed her and kicked her into the hole in the ground. Unfortunately, she was not faking. Sandy had sadly died from her mistreatment. Courtney, Gary's killed the first person that we know of. I don't believe he necessarily meant to. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. I don't think that Gary intended for Sandy or any of his captives to die, for that matter. They couldn't have had his babies if they were dead. Her death was a result of two factors, I think, related to his bizarre thinking. The first is the kind of disorganized thinking that comes with psychosis, which likely made it difficult for Gary to rationally predict how his actions would impact the women. Like, if I starve them, they might die. Like, kind of didn't think that far ahead. Mm-hmm. Um But then the second is the kind of just callous disregard for human suffering that allows a person to hurt people without remorse. You know, and you put those two together and Gary did whatever he wanted to Sandy without feeling bad about hurting her, but also without thinking ahead about how torture and starvation could lead to infertility or death. Mm -hmm. So the women who remained watched as Gary hauled Sandy out of the basement and then heard what sounded like a power saw being used upstairs. I guess Gary had a couple of dogs that ran around, and one of them came down to the basement soon after Gary cut up Sandy with a long, bloody-looking bone and started to eat it in front of the remaining women. It was later thought that Gary ground up Sandy's body and mixed it with dog food, which he fed not only to his dogs but to his captives. What he did not grind up, he packaged neatly and put into his freezer. Gary tried to dispose of the bones by cooking them, and I guess it just smelled awful. 
The women in the basement were retching, and the neighborhood complained to the police. When the police came to Gary's door, he just told them he had overcooked a roast. The cop left, but the smell lingered for days. Apparently, Gary smelled so strongly of cooked flesh that his captives gagged every time he came near them to abuse them. So remember we're dealing with a schizophrenic. They tend to be paranoid, and Gary was certainly paranoid. He was worried the women might escape. He would bribe the women with food if they ratted out on each other. But another thing he did was he dragged them upstairs one by one, bound and gagged, and drove three kinds of screwdrivers into their ears. He did this because he thought that if they could not hear him in the house, they wouldn't know if he was there. Josefina was the only one that didn't receive this punishment because she was the favorite, and she may have snitched on the others a time or two. So this is a good example of the kind of disorganized or unrealistic type of thinking that Gary was experiencing. You know, most people, if they're afraid of being heard, would do things that block sound. Like maybe they're trying to soundproof the room or they play loud music to mask other sounds, etc. But most people don't think about trying to deafen a person with a screwdriver. Courtney and I both, um, when we read that, said that we did like the shiver shake. Oh, totally. (laughs) Visceral, like wince response. My gosh, it's awful. Deborah Dudley was still the most tenacious of the women as far as trying to escape. Gary did not appreciate her. She was often abused the most, and one day, in an effort to scare her, he took her upstairs and showed her what remained with Sandy. Apparently, her head was in a pot. This sight did not deter her from trying to get out, however. So Gary came up with a new method of torture. He took an electrical cord and cut the end off of it, exposing the wires. He then plugged the other end into the wall socket. He would touch the cut end to the women's metal chains and would laugh at them as they were being electrocuted. One day he put the women, except Rivera, Josefina, into the hole and filled it with water. He used the electrical cord to shock all of them in the hole. He overdid it, though, as he ended up killing Deborah. Perhaps in this case he meant to kill her. I mean, she was a pain in his butt, sounds like. But um, regardless, he placed her in the freezer until he could decide what to do with her. That night he took his favorite, Josefina, out for a nice dinner. Gary started to treat Josefina more like a girlfriend. He took her out often, and he confided in her as well. Per the book, he told her, quote, If I ever get caught, I'm going to act crazy. I'm going to go into court and salute everybody. I know them inside and out. I've learned so I can keep getting my government checks. Courtney, what do you think? Has he been faking this entire time? Fully faking? No, I don't think so. Exaggerating? Probably. You know, I believe that Gary really does or did have an organic psychotic disorder that led to his multiple hospitalizations, at least in the beginning. Um, And when a person spends as much time in hospitals or prison as Gary, it's easy to become institutionalized. So institutionalization, which we talked about in more detail when we covered Harvey Kerrigan, um, is when a person learns to function best in a controlled setting where freedoms and choice may be limited. So a person can learn to manipulate the system in order to get their needs or wants met. For Gary, he was very intelligent when he was lucid. um, And he learned which ones of his behaviors and symptoms worked more in his favor and got him what he wanted. um, So he could choose to play those up a little bit more, pretend he was having them, even if he wasn't at that time. Yeah, I mean, he was in the one for four years. And mm-hmm. if he and he went mute halfway through, so we just didn't have to like deal with anything, right? <laughs> when that could have been legit catatonia, or it mm-hmm. could have been 
maybe it started as legit and mm-hmm. then it's like this is working for me i'm just gonna keep doing it exactly gary eventually disposed of deborah's body by dumping it in a nearby area so at this point gary only has three women left right he had five two of them have, have died we don't think on purpose deborah maybe a little bit but not really but he wants 10 captives altogether. So he took Josefina out to look for another woman to kidnap. They found 24-year-old sex worker Agnes Adams working on a corner. She agreed to the $30 Gary offered her, got into his car, went to his house, and he raped, choked, and bound her before putting her down with the other women. And he said to Josefina, quote, that was easy. We can do that again tomorrow. So I'm not trying to paint Josefina in a bad light here. She was working on a plan to get away. She had pretty much gotten Gary's trust by now, and he had um, and he had her and the other girls sign a letter saying they were responsible for Deborah's death. So he felt pretty good about himself, like that was going to protect him. She convinced him that she needed to go see her family, her children, and maybe she could bring back another victim for Gary. So Gary bought this and dropped her off, and when he did that, she ran to her boyfriend's house. Now, he was shocked. She had been gone for four months. That's how long she had been held captive. And her story was unbelievable. Literally, her boyfriend didn't believe it. He did take her to a a payphone where she called the police, and they too struggled with what she was telling them. Thankfully, they sent an officer, and um, they went over to Gary's house and followed up. Um, Or sorry, they went over and found um, Gary where he was waiting for Josefina, which was about three blocks away, and they arrested him. Courtney? It really is nice to have police actually listen to a woman, especially a sex worker, and follow up in a serious way. You know, it's it's not the story that we usually get to talk about. Right. Too true and annoying. Yes. Yeah. Well, suffice it to say, the police went to Gary's residence and found the other three women in the basement. They also found so much more, and I have a feeling it might have been a bit like when they searched Anthony Sowell's house. Courtney, what do you think? The investigators really did stumble upon much more than they bargained for. Similar, I think, both to Anthony Sowell's home and brings to mind a little bit of Kermit Gosnell's office Mm -hmm. as well. You know, the home was filthy. There was evidence of a lot of alcohol and drug use. There were several other people staying there. And then additionally, they found the most damning evidence in the freezer where Gary still had parts of Sandy's body stored. There was more than enough evidence, even without the testimony of the women to charge him. All right, so we're going to jump ahead to when Gary is going to trial. And he had the money to pay for a fancy lawyer. He had that $500,000 that the church had. So his lawyer tried the, you know, tried to win the case, but the evidence was just too much. Per Wikipedia, quote, at Heidnick's arraignment, he claimed that the women were already in the house when he moved in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. At trial, Heidnick was defended by Charles uh, Peruto Jr., who attempted to prove that Heidnick was legally insane. Heidnick's insanity claim was successfully rebuttaled by the prosecution led by Charles Gallagher III. The fact that he successfully amassed over 550000 through his brokerage account was used to prove that he was an astute investor and therefore not insane. So that was their reasoning why he wasn't insane. What do you think about that? So while I do agree that Gary was not legally insane, um, but I don't necessarily think that it's because he was good with money, as the prosecution argued. 
if we assume that the schizophrenia diagnosis Gary was given is accurate and that he was suffering from delusions about being owed a family, that does not mean that during this time he was experiencing significant levels of other symptoms that could have been more debilitating. Mental health is not a constant. It goes through phases of improving for a while and then sometimes worsening. And so many of the or excuse me, if many of the financial decisions that Gary made occurred during a time where his illness was better controlled, it doesn't negate his having an illness. However, I think it is clear that he knew what he was doing was wrong and was very much aware of the potential consequences of being caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what legal insanity means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can see this evidence based on the countermeasures that he took like keeping his hostages chained up, lying to police and victims' families, dismembering and discarding the remains of Sandy and Deborah, and, you know, having the women sign a fake confession. Yeah. Um, The way that the book described it, the lawyer that he hired was not really wanting to take the case, and he named a number that he didn't think Gary could afford, and he could afford it. So then he was like, well, crap. (laughs) Right. <laughs> That's kind mm-hmm. of how I took that one. Because, um, you know, Gary did not look like he had half a million dollars in the bank. Nope. He and looked, his house did not look like no, he had that he, much money. Yeah, he looked like a vagrant and he smelled and, you know, all of the things. So, anyhow, on July 1st, 1988, Gary was convicted of two counts of first degree murder, six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, four counts of aggregate aggravated assault and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse he was sentenced to death and incarcerated at the state correctional institution in pittsburgh also per wikipedia garen gary was given a last meal and he chose two pieces of pizza and coffee and that was on july 6 1999 he was put to death by lethal injection gary heidnick was the last person put to death in the state of pennsylvania per this post Mm -hmm. i got to admit i didn't actually look much further so that could be incorrect uh courtney what do you think about this case you know i think that this case raises a lot of good questions um about how we as a society really understand and approach mental health and criminality you know there's been a lot of progress in research and treatment of those struggling with mental illness since gary was in the system back in the you know 1960s through the 1980s But there are still a lot of problems with how convicted criminals with mental health problems are housed and treated. Yeah, I can think of like just a few personal experiences or people I know with personal experiences that um, have been affected by people who maybe need to be in like. What what is it long term? Like, what is it when you when you live there and like forever? Like a mental health facility, um, like you just need that care all the time, or you are going to be a danger to yourself or society. Right. Oh my gosh, there's a word that I can't think of well, right now. There, but there, basically being oh, being committed. Committed. Okay. Yeah. There are mm-hmm. very few places that mm-hmm. have the capacity for that, and so you know mm-hmm. maybe they're getting some treatment and they're being forced to take their medication or whatever when they're in these facilities, but when they get out. There's no one to, there's just not, there's just not the resources for them to continue to stay well. And sure. Then, and that know, was. Bad things can happen. Yeah. And that was, I think, the big unintended consequence of the vast majority of like mental health institutions being mm-hmm. kind of closed down 
in the 1980s Mm -hmm. um, with this great lofty goal of having community-based care, but then those in charge and allocating money and things like that never actually followed through with allowing that community-based care to really get set up in the way it needed to. So when people were released from these institutions, they were just released onto the street with no support. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we haven't really right. gotten much better yeah. than that. Yeah. Um, Dang it. Yeah. But. I think there's a lot more like outpatient resources now, mm-hmm. but for those people that do need that higher level of care, right. there's not enough. There's not even a place for youth in our area. Nope. It's like they got to go... You two know, hours away. Two hours away if they need inpatient. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, there's a need there. And if I won the lottery, I would definitely, that would be one of my projects, is a local facility for youth that need inpatient treatment. I would be behind that. Yeah. We could open that together. Yeah, totally. We I'll be the clinical director or something. Okay. I'll just be, I'll just be the backer with all of the money. Yes, you can be the, the <laughs> CFO. Yeah. <laughs> Totes. <laughs> All right. Well, that was um, the end of Gary Heidnick. It was. And I'm, we don't really think he's a serial killer, but. Not in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't really. Same drive isn't there. Right. It wasn't an intent to kill. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of a unfortunate side effect. Yeah. But it was still a very interesting case. So I'm glad that we did it. Um, So the next case we're doing, I put off for a long time because it's just so awful. And we're not going to clown around next time, Courtney. We're not. That's it's going to be very clue. serious. <laughs> so you guys can probably figure it out from that <laughs> clue. Um, but we also have something else that we are going to, Courtney, go ahead and you say it. Yeah. So we want to give a big shout out to the guys over at Pine Room Studios. Um, so they have a podcast and also a local radio show out in Wheeling, West Virginia. And we had the opportunity to sit down with them and do an interview um, about our podcast and kind of about the the things that we're interested in for their show. Yeah, they reached out to us, um, which was really cool. It was the first time we've had anyone do that. So, um yeah, I'm not sure when it's going to air or if they're going to be like, yeah, we're just going to scrap this. But <laughs> if they do, and even yeah. if they don't, it was still really cool talking to them sure. and um, talking to other people who do podcasts. Because besides the time that we went to that uh, Green River Fest or that yeah. Crime Con thing, mm-hmm. um, really haven't talked to any other podcasters. It's so true. Yeah. It's, you know, I it's kind of any time that can happen, it's cool. And they have a way cooler setup than we do as far as they're like in a studio. Well, they have a radio studio that yeah, they can yeah. use. Yeah, we need one of those maybe someday. <laughs> right, yeah. Along with the inpatient re- or facility for children, we'll get one of those as well. Of course, yeah. yes. So, yeah, I think um, they were saying probably in the next week or so, um, mm-hmm. it'll be on both their live radio shows um, and also on their podcast, which is posted. So and if you want to hear us talk about ourselves a little <laughs> bit, go check it out. Um, if you just want to listen to a different podcast that is very different from ours, go check them out too. Yeah. It's at the Pine Room Studios on Instagram. Um, and they talk about everything. 
Yep. Yeah, they don't. I, I mean, we listened to a few of a few of their episodes to see what we were getting into, and it's very pleasant. It's very like yeah, nice. Um, yeah, they, they're cool guys. Yeah, they're it, they just they have a wide um, array of stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just lots of topics. So you could go listen to that and see what you think. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But so Courtney, what do we do when a mute person salutes us and tries to get us into their Cadillac? Go nuts. Go home. And go to therapy. That's right. All right, everyone, be safe. We'll see you in some Tuesdays sometime. Not sure when. Bye. Keep it.